from the CD studios of Univest at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. It is time for another inflation-fighting episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks. You bet your garden. Prices for fresh produce are predicted to rise rapidly after California's devastating floods. Are you ready to protect your wallet? I'm Mike McGrath, and on today's show, we'll help you grow more of your own fresh food, this time featuring the unsurpassed crops of summer. Plus your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and curiously concise condemnations. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than you picking out your perfect tomato right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up on today's show, more money-saving advice about food that you can easily grow to feed your family without breaking the bank. Today, we're going to focus on beans, both string beans, which you may call green beans, but you're wrong, and beans for saving over winter, like pinto and other, uh, you know, I don't know, pinto just like pinto beans, okay? And we will continue with our new feature, Just For You podcast and terrestrial radio listeners, in which we will discuss a pertinent story in the news. This week, what do you do with more manure than this show produces in a month? If you watch us on TV, you better check out the hour-long audio version of our show. And finally, I want to thank Jim for bringing in true Philadelphia soft pretzels. It really made my day, although I've been chastised by the crew for not putting mustard on them. I'm having them neat because it's been a long time since I had a real soft pretzel. All right. 888-492-9444. John, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hello, Mike. Good to talk to you. It's good to talk to you, John. How you doing? We're doing all right here. Okay. And where is right here? I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. As are so many of our listeners and callers. It's really great. Uh, We love being on in Nashville and Memphis. So what can we do for John? Now, is Nashville a music city or is that Memphis? Nashville is music city. Okay. What can we do for John in the music city? Well, on December 15th, 16th, and 17th, we had one of the most vicious severe storms I've ever seen here in the 25 years I've lived here mm-hmm. and in gardening. Um, and it got me thinking as I have perusing the damage around town to all the vegetation about zones and what plants are you know, capable of handling this climate here. Generally speaking, we're considered to be zone six. Mm-hmm. 
um, which should be, you know, be okay for plants down to about 10 below zero. Um, our low was skirting right around zero to a t- couple de- degrees below that. Right. When the storm moved in, and we dropped from 43 degrees to three degrees in about eight hours, uh-huh. accompanied by snow and monstrous winds and all. So uh, any of his own seven plants that I had and I've observed around the neighborhood, they're all fried. They're gone. Yeah. And the zone six plants, including you know Leland cypress, big big trees like that. Are, are really damaged, and so I was just curious about how much wind chill plays into messing with the zones. Uh, just about, um, just about a hundred percent. We've had, you know, temperatures since I've lived here down into the low single digits, but they were all clear and still nights. And this was the first time I'd seen temperatures like that accompanied by a storm like this. So, um, there's yeah, I mean. There's two things going on here. When it's early in the season or late in the season, when you have still plants out in the garden that you want to protect, um, it doesn't matter about the air temperature as long as it uh, stops at around freezing. The difference is the wind. And in this case, wind is good because it keeps the air moving and it prevents frost from settling on the plants. The safest night that it gets really cold is a very cloudy night because the clouds hold the heat in place. So cloudy with a little bit of wind, plants can survive, I'm, I'm gonna guess five degrees lower than they could under different conditions. But when you get really cold temperatures and really howling winds, what happens is the plants get desiccated. The wind just sucks the moisture out of them. You know, the ground may be wet. It doesn't matter. The plants are mostly dormant. They're not very good at taking up water. Um, Normally, it is uh, very dry outside, you know, meaning low humidity during the winter time. So, you know, things are already a little dry. And then these winds just suck the life out of plants. Think of fig trees. Everybody knows that if you live in a certain climate, you don't have to wrap your fig tree. But in some climates, it's better to wrap it. Even if you don't wrap it in a dicey climate, it's going to come back from the root system. But If you had wrapped it and protected it from the desiccating winds, the top growth would be unharmed, and you might get two crops of figs that year. So the easiest solutions are wind breaks around your sensitive plants, uh, now that you know what they are. And don't write anything off till we get to spring and see what leafs out. You know, this is not the time to try to do something, you know. Oh, no, I, I mean, I have a I have a 30-foot hedge of English laurel, right? which is a zone 6 plant, but it's just brown. I can see now that we're back in the 50s and 60s that some of the leaves are starting to show a little green again in them, but I'm, I'm perfectly prepared to lose. I mean, they're like 10, 12 feet tall. 
I'm perfectly prepared to lose the top few feet of them as way it look as way it's looking. You know? Okay. And as I drive around town, a really popular plant here in Middle Tennessee is Japanese privet for hedges and mm-hmm. you know specimen shrubs, and that's a Zone Seven plant, and it has always done fairly well here. And the reason it's popular is because it keeps its leaves all winter and you know provides good privacy screening. But they are all just ravaged right now. All the ones I see all around town, my neighbor across the street, and all of mine. I have a 20-foot hedge, about six feet tall of that stuff, and mm-hmm. it's just gone. You know, I mean, all the leaves fell off it. Even my hollies were damaged. Yep. I mean, there's only three. You know, this but, is this is you know. exactly what we have been hearing from many people in the Nashville area. Um, this was kind of like the perfect storm for you guys. Now well, I've noticed if, looking at looking at oh go ahead I'm sorry if you have a warm spell right now and it hasn't rained since that storm it would not be out of line uh, to gently water at the base of the affected plants. Well, how do you handle that? This um, especially in choosing the kind of plants you want to grow. I'm in a very unique microclimate. I'm about half a mile up on the foothills of South Mountain. And we're very much shielded um, from the winds that would hit my garden. So I've, yeah. I've never had this problem. But uh, to paraphrase a popular phrase, you can take your map and shove it because it don't mean yeah. nothing anymore. Uh, the climate thinks every day is anything can happen day. So if you see something like this being predicted, be prepared. Have some burlap handy. If, if the least you can do is wrap the burlap around the plant, that's fine, but get it off after the event so it doesn't get soaking wet and freeze. Build like a little structure uh, that you can use to create an artificial windbreak uh, with burlap, and you can leave that up all winter long. I've known, I've seen pictures of people in farther northern climes doing that, but I can't really wrap a, a you know twelve foot tall, thirty foot long hedge of English laurel with burlap. It's just uh, beyond you know my physical capabilities to do something like that. Right, but, and we don't know for sure what good it would do to protect the bottom six eight feet. Um, but let's say it's a total disaster. Um, it would still give you more greenery the following year than you'd get with no protection. Well, all right. Well, I'm, I'm certainly going to be looking at a lot more Zone 5 plants <laughs> to try to replace some of the Zone 6 stuff. Because, I and mean, it could be another 30 or 40 years before we experience this again. Which no, is about next, if you buy a lot of... If you buy it could a, happen again. If you buy a lot of Zone 5 plants, it'll be 100 degrees every day next year. That's the trouble with when you start getting in the low zone is that they, they don't like the 90 degrees for three weeks in a row. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a narrow window, which you can actually kind of keep alive around here. So. John, gardening is anyway. not for the timid. Uh, no, it's not for the faint of heart or the thin of wallet. Yeah. It's not. It's not so. But you're, you're, right. you're right about winter wind. It is the enemy. So do what you can I, with I've that in mind. Looking. I'm looking out the window at, at that damage it did right now. It's you know, and that's all over town too. And this, the Leland Cypress, that's now, the one that really surprised have, me. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize this were Zone Six plants, but they are. We've heard from so many people. I'm confident this is all over your area. Yeah. Well, yeah. I can drive around town. I can see it here for sure in Nashville. It's you know, 
I mean, some beautiful Leland cypress. There's big ones, 30, 40 feet tall. They're all turning tan. Well, they're just gone. Yeah, you can tell. No, they're not gone. It's like the Monty Python parrot. Maybe they're just resting. Uh, <laughs> so give them a chance. Let's see what happens in the spring. And by the time we get to May, any parts that are really, truly dead, you can prune those off. All right. Would it harm my hollies to do my annual February kind of pruning to the long branches that are growing out and hanging off, even though they're kind of stressed right now? Should I skip it or um, go, go ahead and do it? I, I would wait till later in the spring. Okay. But uh, hollies yeah, about could, February, when they're really dormant, I just, when the berries are gone, and when I try to do it. You know, yeah. dormant is good, but you're not really sure what's alive or dead. What's better is to wait till the plant leafs out, shows you what's going, then you can do a better job. And spring is a fine time for pruning hollies. All right. Good luck to you, sir. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Yes. Hello. Hi, Ken. How are you? Pretty good. And where is Ken pretty good? At uh, Outside of Bath, Pennsylvania. Very good. What can we do for you, sir? Well, the fruit on my uh, fruit trees are not maturing. The apples and the pears are about as big as a uh, golf ball. Mm-hmm. And the cherries are as big as a pea. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, with the apples, to get full-size apples, you have to do what's called thinning the fruit. You have to take off at least half of those little marbles when, um, when they're about marble size, and that will allow the tree to push the others to full size. Now, uh, what you're telling me about the um, the cherries and what the pears, um, that's unusual. There's something going wrong here. So, um, how much sun do these trees get? Uh, they they are pretty well in the sun. Okay, um, are they mulched or fed throughout the season? Yes. At the base? Yes. What are they mulched with? Uh, horse manure. Oh, ding, ding, ding. That didn't take long. Horse manure is high in nitrogen. It will inhibit flowering and fruiting. That's the worst thing you could put around a fruit tree. So get rid of the horse manure as soon as possible. Leave the the base of the tree, the area underneath the tree, naked, and you will get uh, much better results. But remember, you have to pick off half the baby apples to get big apples. Right. Okay. All right. Good luck to you, Ken. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Bye-bye. 
Well, it's time for me to take a little break and inform all of you that our special audio-only segment in the news is coming up. This time out, how the Pennsylvania Farm Show handles more manure than this show produces in a year. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up a little bit later in the show, we will continue to help you choose the right seeds for your situation and needs before the seed companies sell out. Today, we're going to talk about beans, tomatoes, peppers, and a surprise guest. You won't want to miss it, and you won't. It's coming up after more of your fabulous phone calls at 888-492-9444. Tommy, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? I am doing just ducky, Tommy. Thanks for asking. (laughs) How are you, sir? cold, but I'm okay. And where is Tommy okay? Um, In uh, Chester County, Pennsylvania. Oh, sure. It's a very nice area. Now, before we proceed, I have a personal question to ask. Um, On the call screen, I see that your last name is Garen. Uh Uh-huh. My high school principal was Father Garen uh, at Northeast Catholic High School for Boys. Any relation? Uh Almost definitely. I don't. I don't know him. I, 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 I'm. I'm only fifty. Fifty-one. Right. Um, but uh, if it was in Philadelphia, it definitely almost is like uh, a relation. I just don't recall him. And uh, my, uh, well, my family. Some of my family went to Central in Philly. Right. Okay. My dad went to La Salle. Okay. All right, well, let's proceed with your question. What's going on? Um, the deer keep eating my rotos and my azaleas mm-hmm. and my yew bushes. Mm. And um, azaleas and rhododendrons are two of their favorite plants. And uh, the yew bush seems a little unusual, uh, but deer will eat anything if they're hungry enough. So what have you tried to do to dissuade them? Um, like years ago, I tried spraying the, something with like eggs in it or something. Right. Some kind of professional right. product, but it, it didn't do anything. It, I mean, as far as I can tell, it didn't mm-hmm. do anything. It didn't protect them. Well, I have two ideas for you. Um, 
And these have always worked for me. Um, the first is a motion-activated sprinkler. Once we get past the freezing time, um, you hook this device up to a garden hose, turn the hose on full blast, point the device where uh, at the plants you wish to protect, and nothing happens until the deer break the beam. And then all of a sudden it comes on with a start and a, a, a noisy swish, and then it throws a couple of cups of cold water at them. <laughs> so, cool. well, and even better, if you do this early in the season, as soon as uh, all chance of the hose freezing has passed, um, that's the young deer that are mostly seeking out new territory. And if they have a bad experience at your place early on, they're not going to come back. They're just going to go eat the neighbor's rhododendrons. <laughs> uh, so you don't have to keep buying deer sprays. Uh, it's a one-time investment. You can adjust, and it just has a regular um, sprinkler head on top, so you can adjust how wide it is, things like that. I could not. Oh, that sounds great. I could not garden without mine. Motion activated sprinkler. There's several models out there now. Like on Home Depot or Lowe's or something. Ah, I don't know. Um, you know, I prefer, you know, your independent garden centers out there are fabulous, and they deserve to be supported. And if you oh, can't yeah, sure. if can find it with them, uh, buy it online. But I, I don't like buying gardening stuff at big box stores. That's, that's for lumber and light bulbs. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, in the winter, there is a really neat product that's been around for almost ever. But not enough people know about it. It's called the wireless deer fence. Um, the guy who designed it uh, is still uh, making them and selling them out of his home. I believe in Ohio, maybe. And what you get is a, uh, a foot tall, maybe two foot tall stake uh, that has uh, space in the belly uh, for some AA batteries. And... And on the very tip, on the very top, there are four electrodes, and they surround a removable and replaceable scent pellet. Now, the scent pellet uses the same chemicals that deer hunters use to try to attract deer. So you want to be careful to put the scent pellet in before you install the batteries. I made that mistake once. <laughs> um, but you put the scent pellet in, um, you put the batteries in, and then you just stake it around the plants you wish to protect. And this works winter and summer, and it does the same thing. When the deer lick the top and get a shock, they don't want to come back to your place. Oh, oh I get it. And they're sold in sets of three. So, you know, maybe three will cover your plants that have been eaten Maybe you want to get two sets and, and go to town, uh, but they work really well. When I first tested them the first year, I came out one day and they were all kicked over. And I called the guy and he said, that's great. <laughs> that means you shocked that many deer. <laughs> okay, get 
Okay, so a motion-activated sprinkler in warm weather and the wireless deer fence. That's the website, wirelessdeerfence.com. Oh, that's the, that's the web address? Yes. Yeah, I, um, I think they've been sold uh, in retail. Uh, they were at the flower show one year. Uh, but the easiest way and the way this, this genius gets the most out of it is to buy them directly from him. And it comes with a whole bag of scent pellets, so you can you can go to town. Oh, cool. That's great. All right, man? All right. Can I ask you some more questions? Uh, no. <laughs> Simply because <laughs> okay. we're, we're out of time. But you're welcome to call back, especially if the question is very different. It is very different. Okay. Thank you very much, Mike. My pleasure. Good luck to you, sir. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Right. As promised, this is our In the News special segment that is only available on the podcast and radio show editions of You Bet Your Garden. So if you know somebody who only watches on TV, tell them to listen because we got some fun stuff. And I mean fun stuff. The other stories that I've held out are about, you know, the decline of lightning bugs and reptiles and all this depressing stuff. But Jason Nark, uh, N-A-R-K, I knew Jason Stark at the Inquirer. Anyway, it's the Philadelphia Inquirer, and the story he wrote is doing the math, <clears throat> doing the manure math at the Pennsylvania Farm Show. Where does it all go? I know a lot of people have asked me what happens 
to all the mulch and all the soil from the Philadelphia Flower Show. And it's easy to assure them that it all gets composted and recycled, as do a vast majority of the plants, except for the big trees. They just take them out and plant them. But the Pennsylvania Farm Show, I think, runs for like 12 days, one of the biggest farm shows in the country. And uh, people show off their chickens, their ducks, their rare breeds, and their cattle. And that's what we're talking about. There are, uh, Jason says, 6,000 animals uh, there. And that's a whole lot of manure. It adds up by the ton and it doesn't go out with the garbage. There are two loaders operating all week, moving the manure to haulers, and then it goes off to become mushroom substrate in Chester County, which is the center of mushroom production in the United States, or it becomes field dressing slash fertilizer spread across farmland. Um, they add that the pile gets very, very large. On the day Jason was there, uh, the pile was 10 feet high. And he notes, consisting of a manure-straw combo. Um, there were no fowls on display because of the avian uh, flu that's going around. So it's mostly cattle manure, dairy cattle. And what Jason notes, maybe even accidentally, is important to us because one of the things I try to repeat a couple times a year is that the word manure does not mean just the stuff the animal was done with. In real terms, manure is the poop and pee of the animals mixed in with the bedding that protects them from slipping on the barn floor or the, the floor of the, of the farm show. So you got your dry brown material in the straw. Then you've got your high nitrogen material in all of the stuff that the animals were done with. And when you pile this up in a huge pile, you get fabulous compost. So it grows great mushrooms. Again, uh, Chester County and the area around Reading are rife with mushroom farms. And this is a perfect material to grow it, but it would also make perfect compost for you if you got some and you just piled it up and let it cook down. This is material you don't have to add anything to. You don't have to turn it. Like I said, it's the perfect combination of dry browns and, quote, wet greens. Yeah, we know neither of the things that the animals are done with are green, uh, but that's, uh, you know, that's the way it's classified. And by the way, um, an employee of Giorgio Mushrooms in Berks County, PA, said it's not accurate to think of it as just animal waste feeding the $3 billion mushroom industry in the state. Yeah, there's some animal waste mixed in with the straw, 
but I wouldn't want people to think we're just spreading manure over our mushrooms. We're mostly using used bedding, used straw. And that is so tremendously important. One of the things I try to get across is the vast majority of a compost pile should be dry browns. And you don't have to shred them if you're piling them up 10 feet high. They'll cook down uh, quite well on their own. And then it, a relatively small percentage is the waste. And again, that will activate all of the organisms living in the straw and help the compost cook down well. I can't tell you how important it is with your home compost pile for the vast majority of it uh, to be a material like shredded leaves, not waste paper or junk mail or anything like that. And I'll explain why in a future show. But if you collect and shred your fall leaves and instead of manure, you get used coffee grounds from your local coffee shop, that exactly replicates the process we're talking about. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind everyone still facing the potential of snow and ice that rock salt is the worst ice melt product to use. It's a plant, lawn, and concrete killer and doesn't work well at extremely low temperatures. My choice of alternatives is calcium chloride. It melts ice at very low temps and is much more environmentally friendly. I'm environmentally friendly Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. This is 91.3 FM, WLVR Bethlehem, WLVR.org. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, because they're not paying attention up on the second floor. And we are in the stretch now, cats and kittens, in just a little bit. We'll tell you some things to watch out for when you order your seeds for the plants of summer. But before that, a couple more of your fabulous phone calls. 888-492-9444. Cindy, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hey, hi, Mike. Um, I'm in Salina, Kansas, which is in the north central part of the state. Okay. And um, what can we do you for? Um, I've got uh, those thorny blackberries mm-hmm. that um, have have escaped their bed and are moving all over the yard. And I and I want to reclaim the bed itself um, because I'm tired of getting poked and and turn it into a tomato bed. And I was worried that maybe some of the diseases that affect blackberries would also affect tomatoes, and maybe I shouldn't do that. 
No, they're botanically as unrelated as plants can get. Now, didn't you know that raspberries, blackberries, uh, dewberries, wineberries, all of these cane fruits are, are kind of designed to spread? Uh, they need oh, to yeah. spread. You should expect it. Yeah, I just I have a small yard and and I wanted some fruit. So oh no, that's, that's what um, I you know blackberries are not my favorite. I'm a huge fan of raspberries, but as you know, blackberries are also famously thorny. Although there is a, a variety or a group of thornless blackberries, and they're. Uh, sold under the name Doyle, D-O-Y-L-E, for the gentleman who bred out the thorns. So if you want to... I, I do have some of those. Well... That's, that's why I'm really anxious to get rid of the thorny ones. Okay. So they never should have been planted in a raised bed. All of the cane oh. fruits do best in terrible soil. Um, matter of fact, they are... Not so much a cure for terrible soil, but a great use for terrible soil. Um, oh, as, you, as you may have experienced, they don't want to be fed. They don't care about uh, the soil around them. All they want to do is march over to the next state. And <laughs> blackberries are famous for doing that. Out in California, they are classified as an invasive plant. And one, wow. of, one of the first horticultural vinegars with a very high acidity range uh, was actually called uh, blackberry bush beater, or words to that effect. So they are probably more aggressive than any of the other cane fruits. Okay. So well, I got my work cut out, I guess. Yeah, well, and uh, you say they're growing in a raised bed. So uh -huh. you're going to have to try to get out every piece of root, which means you're going to... You, what? I was wondering, how, how deep do you think that I need to go? Do I need to double dig it, you think? Well, get, we'll get there. Be patient. <laughs> you know, it's gardening. You take your time. You have a nice tea. Um, you're really going to need to soak the bed and I mean saturated okay. to 100%. It's going to take okay. hours. And then you and hopefully a couple of friends wearing leather gloves, preferably with the right. gauntlets that go up, uh -huh. and reach down at the base and pull more slowly than you thought possible. If you pull okay. slowly and the soil is saturated, um, the system will emerge from the soil. And it's not just going to be one route. There's going to be runners going off in all different directions because that's where the new canes have sprung up from. So I would say you're going to have to do this two or three times. And then if you want to use that bed for something else, you're going to have to go out and buy deep edging, let's say a foot maybe 18 inches deep and hammer that in on the inside wall of the raised bed because otherwise they're going to come in from the sides. 
Right. They'll get back in. Yeah. Okay. So it's it, it's an arduous task. Um, but, you know, you can oh. give it a shot. I predict failure like I do for most of my garden. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sure glad I called this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ruined your day. All right, Cindy, you take care. Thank you, Mike. You Bye-bye. Bye. As promised, the inevitable question of the week, which, like the previous two, has not been a question. It has been purely instructional. All right, we're calling this more CD suggestions for fighting producefflation. I made that up. The punishing storms that have lashed California for more than a month seem to have finally abated, but the damage is done. A major crop producer, California's Central Valley, was not spared when the state was battered with, wait for it, 400 to 600 percent above the average amount of rain, according to the National Weather Service. Not four to six times the average, but four to 600 times the average. This is beyond even my hyperactive imagination. I have to imagine that most of the current crop is lost. So look for lettuce and other produce prices to soar even higher. And the farm soils are almost certainly contaminated. These kinds of massive floods carry human waste, chemicals, and other nasty stuff. So, two weeks ago, we urged you to stock up on lettuce seeds. Ding, ding, we were right. Last week, we discussed peas, and both crops are fun and healthy foods to grow in the spring. But there are other cool weather crops. Radishes, for instance, are ready to harvest a mere three weeks to a month after you plant the seed in decently warm soil. I personally will be growing the classic variety French breakfast this spring, although I doubt I'll have any of them for breakfast. And you really should pull radishes about three weeks after the seeds sprout. Otherwise, the roots will get woody. And you should pull springtime radishes about three weeks after the seeds sprout. Otherwise, the roots are going to get woody. Spring radishes are a classic eat-at-any-size crop. So harvest with abandon and plant a fresh run every two weeks or so until hot weather arrives. The leafy greens are also edible, incredibly nutritious as well, and the seed pods that will appear if you wait too long to pick, they're also edible. You can eat the whole plant. Two kinds, two, count them, two. Spring radishes that mature fast and fall varieties that are left in the ground to grow large for winter storage. Make sure you plant the right type for the season. Now, cabbage, broccoli, and other crops of spring are also worth a look, but I want to talk today about summertime standards so that you can order your seeds early before all the good varieties are sold out. Beans. There are two basic types. Bush beans, which produce abundantly, despite the plants only getting a foot or two tall. 
Those are great for containers. And pole beams, which require a tall trellis. Note, some pole beams are self-supporting via their clingy tendrils, while other types will flop down on the ground because you didn't pay attention to the descriptions when you ordered them. A good number of string bean varieties are available as compact bush beans. I plant these in containers so I don't have to bend over to pick them. By the way, I would call them green beans, but some types are purple or yellow. Edible at any size, picking early and often yields the best flavor and a bigger harvest. Beans meant to be stored dry for winter soups and stews are left on the vine until the pods turn brown and the beans inside the pot rattle when you shake them, just like me. When young, you can harvest some for fresh green bean eating, but do not pick them young if you want storage beans. The classic variety, Scarlet Runner, attracts hummingbirds with its bright red flowers, and the dried beans are a dramatic black with purple highlights. Hmm. Or maybe they're purple with black highlights. Eh. Anyway, they're so pretty that people make jewelry out of them. All beans are direct seeded outdoors after the soil warms up, and they benefit from the same inoculant you should have used on your peas. All right, now we're getting down to the good stuff. Tomatoes. Again, there are two types. Determinant, or bush varieties, stay short and stocky and are great for large containers. The book says that most of the fruits are going to be produced in one large flush. But in my experience, they continue to flower and fruit if you pick them promptly when they turn ripe. Indeterminate tomatoes grow tall, up to 10 to 14 feet over the course of a season. And these will definitely continue to flower and fruit until frost, or you kill them, whichever comes first. Many classic heirloom varieties like Brandywine, Cherokee, Purple, and Mortgage Lifter are indeterminate and require sturdy support. If you're not willing to work for your reward, stick with indeterminate varieties. We'll have more about summer's favorite fruit next week. And or you can buy a copy of my book, The You Bet Your Garden Guide to Growing Great Tomatoes. It's a fun read, and I think I make like 17 cents a copy. Peppers. Again, two types, hot and sweet. Hot peppers come in an amazing variety of shapes, colors, and heat levels. Unless you're planning on diluting the heat by making a hot pepper sauce with vinegar, Try not to be the he-man of horticulture by growing nasty hot varieties like the notorious ghost pepper. Sweet, like me. So-called green peppers are unripe, not at all sweet, and provide little nutrition. All green peppers will ripen up to a beautiful red, yellow, orange, or chocolate color and are super nutritious flavor bombs. Many big peppers require a long growing season, 
So pay attention to the days to maturity listings. More on peppers next week as well. And as we've said on previous shows, if you've never started seeds indoors before, plan to purchase professionally grown plants at your local independent garden center or pick your seeds and give them to an experienced gardener to start for you. We finish with sunflowers. What a shock. There are two types. Who'd have thunk it? Sunflowers grown for seed, like Russian mammoth, reach 10 feet tall and higher. Ornamental sunflowers range in size from a tiny foot high to maybe about four or so feet and come in a wide variety of dazzling colors. Yeah, you can't eat the ornamental sunflowers, but bees and butterflies love them. And as the Pennsylvania Dutch like to say, you should grow some just for nice. Well, that sure was some timely advice about the musical fruit, now wasn't it? Luckily for you, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over at your leisure or your leisure, just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden Question of the Week, and you always find the latest Question of the Week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to bake my beans if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 888-492-9444. Or send us your email. You're tired, you're poor, your wretched refuse of a message teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please include your location. Thank you. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created by Merv Griffin and Wink Martindale. Ken Queter is our musical director. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our sound engineer is the always cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work and scroll through all the fabulous photos at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Teresa Radke is our peerless princess of profound production. Our audio editor is the always lovely Jonas Bowen. Judicious Jake Boyer does the video. Our directorial director of direction is the harassed and harried Javier Diaz. Also starring Jacob Morris as Art Carney and Zach the Tack as Eddie Van Halen. And let's not forget our beloved band of Carnies, card sharks, and fortune tellers who are all currently hiding under tables in the control room. Recently voted best imitation of Sergeant Filco is our CEO and belly dancer in training, trepidatious Tim Fallon. 
I'm your Beano Nito host, Mike McGrath, and I'll be rummaging through a kitchen table's worth of seed packets until I can see you again next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah.